0: Leaders really do need to become coaches. I am, I I mean, obviously I am a coach, but I also think having taught coaching skills to leaders for many years, that everybody should learn coaching skills. Parents, partners, leaders, managers, friends, even, you know, just the the, the, uh, mindset you bring as a coach is really instrumental in bringing out the best in those around us. So we want feedback that's just in time, just for that person, just in that moment. We also want to be giving not just constructive criticism. For me, this is the big gap is we think if we want to build capability in people, we need to point out what's wrong. And that, that seems obvious, you know, here's your skills gap. So let me close that gap for you.
1: How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are the sum of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute, corporate and world sport coach. This is the inspiring great leaders podcast with the ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today, we're joined by the renowned professional people whisperer, best-selling author, and an influence expert in interpersonal intelligence, communication, and woman in leadership. She majored in human resources and has a bachelor's in business administration at Monash University, where she finished with high distinctions. Her extensive client list includes major corporations such as Mercedes-Benz, ernest young telstra and many more a best-selling author of several books including her latest works the gender penalty and when men lead woman which draw on her experience in supporting women to navigate the leadership landscape and accelerate their careers she has also been featured as an expert on the documentary the gender narrative as well as across multimedia publications, including Foxtel Sky News Business Success Program and the Australian Business Review. We're thrilled to have the Australian Institute of Training and Development's Learning Development Professional of the Year in 2021. The 2022 Victorian President for Professional Speakers Australia sharing her insights on shifting human behavior and increasing interpersonal impact for better business results. Please welcome a multi-award game changer in the field of leadership and development, Annalie Blundell. Annalie, welcome to the show.
0: Gosh, thank you, Craig. That that was a mouthful, that intro, wasn't it? You did well, my friend. You did really well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's well deserved. Beautiful. I love that smile you have. And I'm curious, were you always that super happy child? And where did you grow up?
0: I think I always was a super happy child. Uh, I love to laugh. You know, I read some really disturbing statistic a while ago about how often children laugh throughout the day and how few times adults laugh throughout the day. And I'm telling you, Craig, I was horrified. It was not, you know, it was not, (laughs) it was not in our favor as adults. So I like to think that I've always been a happy child, always quick to laugh, always. Um, interested in fun and connecting and making the most of you know all the moments I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula so there's a lot to love there here in Victoria um, in Australia and so I mean really it was just such a beautiful children's playground you got the best of the best you got the front beach and the back beach and the mountains and bushwalking and hiking and dancing and singing and sailing oh Craig, anything. The world is your oyster, so I can definitely say happy child.
1: <laughs> Beautiful. It's, it's quite interesting. I was talking to a friend the other day and, you know, my observations living around the world uh, so far is up until about the age of 12 or 13, humor and laughter is universal. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what language, doesn't matter where they are, you can have the same type of jokes and friendly banter and fun. And they all laugh in in a similar way, and you have a good time. But as soon as you get over that sort of twelve, thirteen age, for whatever reason, social pressures, or or it's cultural or family, they seem to lose it. It's it's strange. Mm. Strange how it happens.
0: Yeah, that's funny. When I I so most of my upbringing was here in Australia. But actually, what I did, what I failed to mention, Craig, was there were a few quick years in there between the ages of about three to six, where I grew up in Sweden. So my father is Swedish and we lived there for a few years. And I went back as an adult and I remember having a bit of culture shock. I went back in the winter and, you know, my uncle and auntie were were preparing me for how the Swedish people are in the winter. You know, we were going out to the winter markets and drinking the hot glurg and they kept saying to me, I'm really sorry about, you know, how, um, what was the sort of description? Really sorry about how somber or grumpy people, you know, are here because you've got to understand, Annalie, it's winter and it's cold and, you know, we tend to become hermits and we're not we're very different in summer he would say in summer we're we're very we're much more friendly in summer (laughs) and i thought they were perfectly friendly all of them so i'm not sure what he was thinking about but (laughs) yeah i thought that was an interesting statement
1: so having a swedish father and growing up in australia uh for you did you were you able to keep a lot of that or understand a lot of the cultural side from your dad and from the family, from the Swedish. And, and have you tried to keep that as a strong part of your identity and your, you know, I suppose, your DNA, who you are, or have you more just fallen into, you know, I'm from Australia and kind of growing up in that, that whole Australian heritage culture space?
0: Yes, and both. <laughs> the short answer is both. So when I came over i i spoke fluent swedish in fact in fact i cannot believe i'm about to say this but i had a swedish accent when i spoke australian can you be, like what i wouldn't give craig now for that gorgeous swedish accent but um so i you know i came over i was speaking fluent you know english and swedish and but when i came over to australia i got teased About my accent and about how I called my dad Papa and I called my mum Julie for some reason. Don't ask me why. So I, you know, I I sort of copped a bit of flack for being different. And so I didn't want to speak the language anymore. I didn't want to be different from the other kids. So uh, I stopped speaking it and, you know, I lost it. My parents would speak it in the home. Um, And so I, I wanted to assimilate. However, you know, you can take the kid out of the country, but you can't take the lollies out of the kid. And I tell you now, I'm obsessed <laughs> with salty licorice. And anytime I smell cinnamon, or or nutmeg or anything like that, I'm instantly transported back to, you know, the Christmas cakes and the salty licorice that I grew up with. And, um, you know, every every Christmas we we may or may not visit the Swedish church and buy all their lollies <laughs> because it's a tradition and it wouldn't be Christmas without it. So I feel like whilst I pushed away that identity as I grew older, and I went back and visited the country. And I also did, you know, six months of Swedish language at Melbourne University. And I went over there and visited my family. And you know, the language came back really quickly. I just, it was weird. I would just hear people speaking and say, Did you just say this? And they would look at me with that horrified expression, saying, whoa, we, we thought you couldn't speak Swedish. We thought you were just learning. And I'd say, Yes, I am, but I just I I just feel it like I feel like I know what you're saying and often I was right so it, of course you have to use it or you lose it and I've lost it because it's been a bazillion years over 20 years since I've been there um but I feel in my heart I I have fond associations with both
1: mm. it, it... I, th- I feel maybe I have a bit of Swedish in my blood because I definitely um, thrive on lollies and <laughs> Salty licorice. drawn to the licorice <laughs> as well. You touch on something really important here, and we hear a lot about diversity and inclusion uh, in the corporate world and in society, and a lot of it's focused around age and gender, uh, maybe race, disability, but in truthfulness, you know, inclusion, everyone faces being excluded at times, and we can't help it. The, the world will never be fully inclusive, we can't, but we can always head towards that trajectory of how can we make people more, how, how can we make environments more inclusive and reduce the uh, times that we may exclude people, a lot of it indirectly, but trying to reduce that. And we, you know, it, it's fascinating when we're young, or at any age to be quite honest if someone's a little bit different we for whatever reason find a way to even exclude them more um and i'm not sure what it is like is it actually a we like conformity or we kind of feel everyone needs to be the same or or maybe we're jealous that someone's not there, so it's interesting to and it looks sad for me to hear that you had to, you felt like you had to stop, you know, that Swedish accent or or speaking Swedish because you didn't quite fit in in other people's eyes. Uh, so a big challenge through those formative years,
0: definitely, and something I I see even now, and it comes a lot, it comes up a lot, obviously, in the work that I do. Um, So not just helping leaders be more inclusive, but also working with, you know, specific genders, you know, women in the workplace, um, men as leaders, that kind of stuff. And so what we know around the way the brain works is that difference is actually coded in the brain as danger when it comes to people. So you're right, we're hardwired to look for difference. And when we're we're meeting people for the first time, we're making assessments and within 0.07 seconds, literally the blink of an eye, we've already made an assessment about what we think about your personality and who you are to us. Mm -hmm. And so essentially one of the first filters we use is are they friend or foe? And that mechanism around what bucket do we put them in, what label do we give them, friend or foe, sameness or difference danger or safety is very much around how different are they to me because right you've got to think about back in the day we lived in tribes you know we lived and died by the the safety of our group and so if someone came into that group and they were different it was an automatic need for us to be on alert and so the brain is still wired for that, except for now we're out and we're traveling and we're saying to everyone, diversity is the key, diversity is the key, but we're missing this really important piece, which is diversity without understanding is just difference and difference is danger to the brain. And we exclude people and we don't know how to embrace people. And so, you know, you stick a whole bunch of people together in in the name of diversity because we get quote unquote better outcomes And yet, if no one's been taught to appreciate the difference, to understand, and I think for me, this is the key, to allow your human response to the difference. I'm not here to say everyone has to love everyone. You have to openly embrace and accept everyone who's different to you. Difference is actually uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And what we know about high-performance teams and their link to diversity is, yes, diversity in thinking and and backgrounds and you know knowledge creates better outcomes but it's also a more uncomfortable experience for that team so whilst they will get a better outcome they will they will report a worse experience because Craig it's annoying to be frank it's annoying to work with people who don't agree with you who don't see the world the way you see it who come from a frustrating or annoying perspective or constantly challenging you know, what you think, you know, to be true. But unless we're challenged and we're forced to take a perspective other than our own, we're just in groupthink.
1: Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's a fascinating one. I've always uh, been very drawn to people that are very different to me. Um, I, I like mm-hmm. surrounding myself with people, even people I disagree with. One, mm. I'm just I'm curious to know what they've caught that I haven't and yeah. just fascinated <laughs> by why people would think different, you know, like I lived in the Middle East for a while before I went there, I could never understand how anyone could ever, ever contemplate being a suicide bomber. And, you know, obviously I I would never, I I don't agree with it. I I don't think it's right. Mm. But after witnessing, you know, where I was living, you you witness the way people live. I can understand how people could get there. Definitely don't agree with it. Definitely will not support it. But I can understand how people could get there. And without sort of being in that environment, you would never ever get to a position where you could even mm. see that perspective or see that way of living. And I think that's the same. Like it is, it is challenging. And when you look at social change, oh, you know, we have social change happening all the time. So let's say look at social change from a pronoun perspective. Mm. You know, if that shift, is there's whole lots of layers of complexity to it, but like any sort of social change, there's a kind of a combative phase at the beginning where yeah. to get through that barrier, you've got to disrupt people and you've got to you've got to push hard because otherwise it will never ever break through the the sound barrier or the the atmosphere <laughs> to even enter into people's minds, and so it's it's a it's it's really interesting to see people go through that and how it works. Um and so I like I'm really mm-hmm. fascinated with this space at the moment on how does it how do we shift mindsets or not not to agree but to understand mm-hmm. and how to be able to be in an accepting space so it's it's a yeah. it's a fascinating world we're in right now
0: Yeah, and one of my favourite, favourite quotes, and I use this all the time in my trainings, particularly around influence and communication and, and, you know, coaching skills in particular when we're helping leaders step into the shoes of another person and, you know, try and bring the potential out in the people that work with them and for them. One of my favourite quotes is one from Abraham Lincoln where he said, where he said, I don't like that man i must get to know him better Mm. and i just every time i think about i don't like that man hmm i must get to know him better Mm. and as a as a student of you know the human spirit a, a student of human behavior i'm constantly fascinated by why people do what they do so you know um i i i Go through audible books at a rate of knots. I am a massive fan of autobiographies, not just biographies. I want to hear the person write about themselves and I want to hear them recorded in audible so I can, so they're talking to me directly. So listening to people's version of their own experience and particularly celebrity. I'm really interested in this idea of, of, of people who have a persona that's been manufactured in some way or, or. Delivered or positioned in a way that the whole world has a perception of them, or is meant to have a perception, and then they come through that at whatever point in their career and say, "Actually, here's what I was going through that whole time, or here's who I really am, or here's how I struggled with that." And and I like to get really into the lives of people who I've got a response to, like, oh, that person, you know, lightweight or fluff? What do they even do? What's, you know, what's their contribution to humanity? I just want to write them off because of the persona. And it's exactly that thought that comes to my mind. I don't like this person. I must get to know them better that I say to myself, I must get their biography because I want to understand my resistance to them.
1: Very good. We have a a lot of thoughts in common here, which I'm enjoying so far. The when you were in your formative years, were you someone that would lead or follow?
0: Oh, I'm a leader from way back. I'm a leader from way back and it's, you know, it was never something that I I I did because I thought I should be a leader and you know, you need to demonstrate leadership. I just I just wasn't very passive <laughs> and I just always had ideas and I always thought you know, that my perspective um, was important and that I should offer it. And, you know, I I actually remember a a school camp really early on and I don't know how much this unconsciously informed my propensity to want to lead or if it was just something that I'm, you know, I'm just excited about ideas and opportunities and I have ideas and opportunities and for the life of me, my work is to shut up and hear everybody else's first. So... (laughs) And that's really something that I've worked on over the years. But I do remember going to a school camp once. I think I would have been, I don't know, year, gosh, it could have been grade five to year eight, you know, sort of like 11 to 14. I can't even place it. But it was an overnight camp and we had a nighttime scenario where we had to go out in groups of four. And we basically had to do a bushwalk, orient ourselves, you know, through this bush track. And we had a torch and there were four of us in a row and it was only room, there was only room enough for single file. And I remember standing at the back (laughs) thinking to myself, I'm at the back. I don't know what horror movies I've been watching, but I I could just get picked off and no one would know. It is way scarier to be at the back. And not be in control and not you know know what's going on, and everyone's sort of freaking out, and I'm like, right, I'm going to the front because even though it feels like it should be the most dangerous place, you know, to lead from the front and face whatever dangers coming. I thought, no, this I feel more comfortable in the front, kind of seeing what's coming, being able to respond to what's coming rather than at the back, having no idea like being totally blind. And literally being picked off by, I don't know what was going to happen. Did I do? What was I thinking was going to happen? Like some boogeyman was going to come and, um, I don't know, pick me off the bunch. I'm not sure. But maybe there was something in that where I actually found a sense of comfort in leaning in to whatever's going on because I, I, generate a fe- I generated a feeling of control in a situation I couldn't control. By virtue of d- deciding to lean into it, mm. strange.
1: I always had the philosophy that if you're at the back, the shark will tack you. Because <laughs> right. if you're at the front, you're moving too fast, and you're <laughs> and once you startle it, by the time they react, they're they're looking for fish fodder at the back. <laughs> the person
0: that, maybe that's what was going on. Something like that. Something <laughs> like that for sure.
1: <laughs> now you're fascinated by human behaviour. Uh, What is it about human behaviour that fascinates you the most?
0: Oh, man, how long have we got on this podcast show? (laughs) Uh, What fascinates me? I love when people do things that I don't understand. And in my brain, I think to myself, you know, I mean, we've all had these statements, the, the classic driving scenario. Is the one that comes to mind. Why would they do that? Why would you make that turn from that part of the lane? Like, what are people thinking? So, anytime someone does something, particularly in a leadership space, because Craig, as you would know, and all our listeners would know, people make some very questionable decisions at very high levels that impact a whole lot of people. And a lot of those people are going, What the? What was going on in their mind that they thought that was a reasonable decision? And so, I'm really curious to ask that question, what is it that they were attending to in that moment that they thought that was a reasonable decision? What's been their background? What's their lived experience that they think this is the only option or, in fact, that this is a good option? Because it's not until we can start really cultivating that sense of curiosity that we can stop responding to what we deem to be, quote-unquote, stupid decisions and actions and really start to get curious around why people are doing what they do so we're better equipped to stay in connection with them and guide them, be in conversation with them, possibly have a difficult conversation with them. Because part of the issue is as soon as I make my judgment about you, remember, friend or foe, if my judgment is you're so different to me, you just did a stupid thing, why would you do that? You're clearly not someone who's like me. Now I have resistance in our relationship. And and the ability for me to connect with you, to see your value, to search for the good in you becomes much harder work.
1: Whoa, a bit to unpack there, which is which is good. Uh, okay. Hopefully my daughter doesn't look at me and go, what the, (laughs) why did you make that decision? (laughs) Hopefully it doesn't happen too often. Um, We do tend to, you know, people can talk about, oh, look, it's a judgment-free zone or we don't judge you, but humans are designed in a way to judge. And to anyone saying they are judgment-free, I'm sorry. It's a little (laughs) fib because we are all making judgments, a lot of them um, unconsciously. So we form first impressions unconsciously. And it's about, I think when we make judgments, it's about, do we take that space to kind of observe or understand that -hmm. judgment we may have made? Mm -hmm. Are we, have we got awareness of ourselves? Mm -hmm. And so I think as leaders, what are, what are you noticing now post-COVID in regards to the way leaders are starting to show, show any sort of shifts in the way they lead from an awareness point of view? Or are we still seeing similar trends happening in the way that many leaders lead?
0: When COVID first happened, there was this very obvious divide between the leaders who can and the leaders who can't. So, you know, this whole idea of how good are you as a leader became very um, overtly answered, (laughs) not by, you know, by by circumstance, i.e. there was a magnifying of your leadership capacity. If you're really good with people, you're really connected to what was going on, you were seen as a good leader during COVID, you thrived and you doubled down on that and it became really obvious. But if you were a leader because your company was having good times, in which case it really was less about you and more about the circumstance, you were left to dry because all of a sudden that circumstance, you know, your leverage point was gone and now it just relied on your capacity to lead people truly. And so a lot of people were left hanging. You know, we were really exposed for our actual actual skill set. And what I noticed during that time is that COVID really made leaders think about putting their money where their mouth is. You know, we always talk about people are our best assets or, you know, well, if you're a good leader, you should be saying something like that. <laughs> you should be, you know, towing the company line around Lead, lead um, people are our greatest asset, we need to invest in our people, make time for them, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but in COVID, you had to actually do it. You had to really do it. And if you weren't doing it, disconnection happened really quickly. And that's where, you know, we had people really struggling at home, feeling isolated, feeling lost, all that kind of stuff. So I noticed that leaders became much more compassionate, much more empathetic, and they walked the the humanity talk more than ever before. And now (laughs) there is a swing back if if your belief system was not grounded in the ideology that people are the best asset i.e we've got examples of leaders going all right everyone has to return to the office elon musk style whatever the case is right so there's no more conversation around hey a whole swathe of people enjoyed this change, you know, were more productive because of this change. Maybe there's a hybrid model available to us now. You know, what's the feedback we're getting from society around the importance of this massive sh- shift in the way of, that we work now? Um, and if we're not attuned to that, we just go straight back to actually, well, we work best if everybody's in the office. Well, some do, but not everybody does. So again, this big divide occurred. With leaders who are still listening, still intent to have their finger on the pulse with what's going on and what the new world of look, work needs to look like, and others going, "Okay, it's over now. We're going back to the old days, and this is how it was." And everyone, stop watching Netflix. Stop watching Netflix and get back to work.
1: The work, the workplace has changed a lot. I, I like, yeah. So, so in regards, like anyone can lead. Like anyone, everyone leads, right? We the lead. Down the garden path or up the garden path, um, yeah. we we you know people will follow right so mm-hmm. but understanding that importance of when things are going well, as you said, anyone can lead yes. when you're at the greatest challenge or the greatest success, that's when you truly get to see the characteristics of a leader, and yes. it it's important to have that awareness and understanding how are you leading in the situation. And so it brings me a little bit to the importance of resilience when it comes to a leader and this whole, uh, resilience has been a big thing that's spoken about. Uh, and I think for many leaders, if you just achieve success from day one, it's yeah. very difficult to lead when things go the opposite way because you're so attuned to, um, everything going well. And anytime there is a bit of a challenge, how do you back that up in your observations and your work at the moment this work this talk about resilience has become quite popular but how how do we actually effectively build resilience in an organization and Mm. in our people
0: Yeah, you're right. Resilience is a big topic right now, particularly because there's so much going on in the world of work and and so many pressures and the never-ending to-do list and this constant drive and, and almost hunger, if you will, for wanting more and doing more and achieving more. So that natural wanting and striving coupled with any natural disaster, you know, <laughs> insert natural disaster here, insert insert pandemic or earthquake or any any just life, just life, stuff that goes on uh, behind the scenes in people's lives can be huge disruptors. So we are really facing a, a great need for resilience. For me, resilience. I want to talk more about what happens in the mind with resilience because stress is a really interesting thing, Craig. So, you know, I'm sure you would appreciate that stress is not um, defined by the event itself. It's The event itself is an arbitrary event, right? So uh, I've got seven reports due all at once or the board need these papers tomorrow and I'm not ready, whatever the stressful event you think is. It's called you call it the stressful event. What's stressful to some people is exhilarating to other people. And in fact, the body experiences the same physiological responses, whether it's what we call good stress or bad stress. And so this whole idea of resilience is required when we're in stress, when we're overexerted, you know, we're experiencing too much stress. I think it's an interesting conversation is what do we consider to be stressful? And perhaps a way into the idea of resilience is not around how do we cope with more stress because I know there's stress coming and what do I do to stay resilient, which is a useful conversation. I'm happy to have that. But what if we started with, well, how do we know this is stress? How have we decided this particular activity or requirement in our world is stressful? What if it was exciting? What if it was an opportunity? How can we reframe it to be something else? Now, and I don't want to be naive about this, right I don't want to say, oh well, you know you've got three companies folding and just pretend it's a learning opportunity. I don't you know I don't want to make light of this situation. but every day we're taking on stresses and those tiny stresses are building and building and building and they, they can become the straw that breaks the camel's back. So at, at every opportunity, I, I I wish more of us gave ourselves permission to say, is this really stressful? What do I really feel like I can't control this? And what can I control around this? This is something that needs to be done. Okay, great. How I choose to think about that, what I choose to feel about that is still up to me. I can feel totally stressed and out of my mind and basically shut down my prefrontal cortex and not be able to do a good job. Or I can do, or I can say, maybe this is an opportunity to do less with more. And drop my perfectionistic standards, or delegate a little bit more, or stretch myself to see what's really needed here, and and tackle it as an opportunity to grow.
1: Good talking points here. Uh, so let's let's dive into okay stress. So stress, we need we need stress to improve and to yes. grow. Uh, the right type of stress. Yes. Stress is an internal thing. You decide Mm -hmm. the level of stress of something unless I stand on you. And then that that (laughs) is a different type of stress exerted to you. Correct. Um, But in most cases, yes, you get thrown something, someone says something to you, then get to the side. So it's, you know, dealing with those coping skills around around what is, you know, your level of stress or excitement Mm -hmm. or how you choose to reframe it which I think is really, really important. The, when it comes to, uh, you're coming from an athlete background where we spent 95 to maybe 98% of our time preparing and less than one or two, maybe 5% performing. Whereas mm-hmm. you go into the work world and it's like the other way around. You You spend mm-hmm. like, 98 to you know 95 to 98% of your time performing and only 1 or 2 maybe 3% actually preparing. So hmm. do we need to devote more time in the workplace to actually prepare ourselves and to plan and spend more time uh putting ourselves in situations before we actually get to them.
0: Yes, 100% yes, and I love that you brought that analogy from the sporting world How how have we got it so wrong in the world of work? Because the sporting world, the the world you're referencing is high-performance athletes, right? We're not talking soccer on the weekend. We're talking legitimate high-performance athletes. And why aren't we learning from that? If you're spending 98% of your time preparing and 2% performing, there's something we can be learning from that. And I would argue, and I and I share this a lot with uh, the leaders who I coach, you know, particularly if they're wanting to cultivate a greater sense of time, time became really sup- uh, uh, compressed from when we went online. Do you remember? We went online and all of a sudden we had back-to-back Teams meetings and there was no walk between rooms. There was no grabbing a coffee in between, even going to the bathroom in between. It was literally back-to-back-to-back. So people's capacity to disengage mentally from one conversation and re-engage and emerge into another conversation completely got obliterated. And I would argue that's the preparation phase. We don't have much of it, but we can cultivate micro moments where we can deliberately focus on being present. So we know that priming of the mind is really important for performance at work and in athletics. So, for example, we can prime people to be better people leaders when they go into a meeting, just by getting them to think about the people in the room for two minutes before they go in, just two minutes, think about Craig, what's been going on with Craig, what's happening in his home life, what's going on at work, okay, just get sort of into the world of Craig and go around the room and and just tune in to the people in the room. It lifts your, your focus on the agenda and getting through stuff and, you know, the time pressures and it makes you more attuned to the humanity in the room. And so that's a two minute exercise only, but the fact that you have the awareness that we need to make more time for that preparation, so we are better able to perform is, is really the key. I love that. Are you fi- what do you find with the work that you do now with companies?
1: They're just trying to perform. They're just trying to perform. Even when we do learning development, they're still trying to perform. They're still trying to do other work while they are learning with us, and it's a (laughs) constant battle, absolute battle. Um, You know, and it's not just athletes. So you look at musicians. You you look Mm -hmm. at speakers. You look at artists. um, You know, they are constantly in planning, preparation, testing mode. And so if you want to become an effective leader, you know, so if we go to Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point yes. you know, in that book, he, you know, talks about references research around the 10,000 hours mm-hmm. uh, to mastery, right? So it's not, a it's not exact 10,000 hours, but it takes a long yeah. time. It depends on each person, depends on your background, et cetera. Um, a good friend of mine talks around 10,000 experiments. It's important to have 10,000 experiments, mm-hmm to achieve mastery. So not only the hours you need the experiments, but I mm-hmm. like to add the extra part. You need 10,000 exposures. And so mm-hmm. if you're going to be an effective leader and you are are playing in that performance zone all the time, mm. where is your chance to expose yourself and experiment beforehand? Where, mm. where are those hours you're putting in so that when you stand up uh, and you're, you're there, the Everyone's counting on you to make the right decision, or even in those moments where there is no sense of urgency, how are you creating that space for people to thrive yeah, and so it's a it, it's a big shift that we need to see happen, and I'm glad to see a lot more companies putting in emerging leaders programs mm. uh, because way too often someone gets tapped on the shoulder and they go from being a specialist that they've done mm-hmm. for twenty years and Oh, by the way, now you're leading people. Congratulations. (laughs) And they're like, holy crap, what just happened here? What do I do next? Um, should I look good? Uh, (laughs) okay. Uh, Now I'm supposed to say the right thing. So I'm going to say this Mm. rather than actually having that training, that preparation to really succeed. And Mm. a lot of companies will fire people because they don't perform where they should be firing themselves because they haven't actually trained the person or given them the time
0: yeah and and in fact in in um, the work i do when it when it's around learning and development and behavior change programs i'm a big believer in attention density over time i.e you dip into the material you dip out you have a break you dip in you dip out you have a break and there's application in between and the reason that is so effective is because we know that the brain ironically learns in reflection not just action. So we might, and that ten thousand hours is not just ten thousand hours of practice. If you if you practice crap cello for ten thousand hours, you're going to be a crap celloist you're
1: going <laughs> after ten thousand hours, right? <laughs> you will Correct, exactly. So crap celloist. <laughs>
0: that, exactly, exactly right. You'll be a master at something. So it's it's ten thousand hours of deliberate practice, and the deliberate practice is practicing and then pausing. And in that pause, your brain is reflecting and in that reflection, you're learning, oh, I needed to keep my finger this way so it's more effective that way. And that is the piece that actually creates the next level performance. So if we're spending 98% of our time in corporate world, as you say, just performing, we are missing a huge opportunity to actually be learning all the lessons we're learning on a day by day basis that we're not entrenching because we're letting them slip through our mental fingers
1: yeah i'll touch on one more thing here before we we dive into another area but one of the things i noticed they do very well in the military Uh, they do this very well in kind of the performing arts they do it very well in sport is that you're constantly getting feedback Mm. and you're you're taking those moments of reflection as well whereas quite often in the corporate space the only time we receive feedback is a six-month review or a 12-month review, which by then our view of what happened is skewed. Um, we probably can't even remember what we did in that situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the times it just becomes either cheerleading or we are punishing someone for something they may have already learned from and done so many other amazing things. So how can we how can we make a shift inside corporate to make sure that leaders become coaches become trainers, become um, mentors on on a more regular basis rather than trying to be that one person that gives feedback every six to 12 months.
0: I use the analogy just as you have when I'm working with leaders around accelerating the performance of people on their team, whether it's through coaching skills or just having feedback conversations or performance Performance management conversations. The analogy that's the easiest to grasp hold of is if you were playing football, rugby, AFL, soccer, whatever your game of choice is, and you were in the championships and you played a whole, whatever it is, six months worth of competition and you got feedback only at the end. Can you imagine how ridiculous is that? In a sporting world, we laugh at that because it's so preposterous. We are getting. Literally feedback after every kick or every contact, right? With the, with the players and with the, the, the instruments or whatever your sport is. So, so feedback and developing others has to be in the moment wherever possible. And so leaders really do need to become coaches. I am, I, I mean, obviously I am a coach, but I also think having taught coaching skills to leaders for many years that everybody should learn coaching skills, parents, partners leaders managers friends even you know just the 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 um, mindset you bring as a coach is really instrumental in bringing out the best in those around us. so we want feedback that's just in time just for that person just in that moment we also want to be giving not just constructive criticism for me this is the big gap is we think if, if we want to build capability in people we need to point out what's wrong and that that seems obvious you know here's your skills gap so let me close that gap for you but we also have to remember that people develop and grow at the intersection of support and challenge so what you're offering then is challenge 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 be better be different do it this way and if you're not equally bringing up the support 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 here's what I love here's where you're smashing it here's where you're doing really well please do more of it. People are being left behind. They're also motivated differently. You know, some are what we call approach and motivated and some are avoidant motivated, i.e. we move towards the carrot or the stick, what we want or what we don't want. So we have to be able to speak out of both sides of our mouths when we're developing performance and and, um, encouraging people to be better. Here's where you need to grow and develop and here's a gap and here's what you're doing well, keep doing it, and here's why it's working.
1: Good. We should have a. We should just have a conversation on the coach, uh, and how people can be coaching, because um, I can. We can go deep in there. But we'll, let's. I. I want to shift a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world as we know it, in our vocabulary and our understanding of gender, is shifting by the minute, by the hour, every single day, right now. Uh, you've written a, a recent book around the gender penalty, which I, I do wanna go deep into, but I, it will take us, as we go through this, we may segue a little bit along the way. Uh, yes. What was the reason for you around writing the book, Gender Penalty?
0: When I was in the workforce, I I didn't understand the fuss about investment in women, um, you know, the, the, the women's empowerment movement, you know, as a young woman in the workplace, I thought I was equal to any man. I, you know, I worked hard at university. Uh, I got good grades. I've got a grad pro, you know, I was on a grad program. I, I, you know, I moved into management within six months rather than 12 months. You know, So I, I had a really good career and I always thought the world was my oyster and I didn't see what all the fuss was about. As I started my own business over 17 years ago and started coaching male and female leaders in the workplace in the workplace, I started to notice a pattern, and that was that the the nature of the nature of our conversations were quite different. So for the for the male leaders, I would be talking about, or we would be focusing on building empathy, building EQ, how to build connections in the workplace, because they're already seen as authoritative. They're already seen as competent leaders. It was about leading staff and and that sort of more personal space. Whereas for women, the competency was already there. They were already seen to be great leaders of their people, but they weren't seen to be authoritative or leaders across the business, i.e., the perception was that they weren't authoritative they didn't have gravitas or executive presence and i thought isn't that fascinating they seem like they're doing exactly the same thing what gives and was and the, you know the more i did research into this and the more i worked with them and the, the more i came to understand this gender penalty that men and women when they pick up the same behaviors are not necessarily received in the same way because we see them through a gender lens so that you know the classic example is a woman who shows lots of passion lots of passion might be seen as hysterical or overly emotional or one who is quite direct or bold or short is seen as aggressive and so this whole idea of women and men showing up with the same behaviors but getting labeled differently because they're breaking gender stereotypes you know women aren't playing the the you know they're not playing the amenable, humble, helpful, caring, nurturing role. So they're violating their gender stereotype when they try and act like a man. So this this was quite a conundrum, and I noticed that more and more of my clients were facing this. And as I grew in my own career, I realized that I I had made a transition from women don't need any help. I really couldn't understand the bus craze. Like I don't understand. I don't I, when I started my coaching career. Uh, people would say, "Who do? You, who's your market?" And I would say, "Anyone who breathes," which is really not good for niche marketing. Can I just say? But a lot of the people that I started the coaching with all said, "I'm I'm a woman's empowerment coach." And I remember thinking, "Why? Like we're okay. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with us. You know, why do we need all this special help?" And I came to understand that women needed help not because they were broken or less than but because they were trying to operate within a system that didn't know how to value them and didn't know how to leverage the skills. That's why I wrote the book.
1: Fascinating. Fascinating. Our perceptions are born through, I suppose, our environments that we've been growing up in. And so now that you've been involved in this space for you know 17 years since you you started your coaching career and your own business are we seeing are we seeing a shift occurring or is it still much we have to just keep supporting women to to be able to um you know play like to for them to utilize their strengths or are we still seeing are we still having to work with men to say, hey, look, you need to see this from a different light or uh, see the different opportunities? Or now that we have, you know, now that we're more prominent with other gender types, what are we seeing in that space?
0: We definitely do see progress, but it's not enough and it's not fast enough. So, you know there are certainly companies who are on the progressive bandwagon they get it right they get it we're not perfect at it no one's claiming to be perfect but they're interested they understand it's important and they're genuinely leaning into this space right prepared to get it wrong that imperfect allyship if you like um and so those companies are you know doing really well and they're looking at changing their policies and procedures and and introducing or removing the systemic obstacles that women might face um whereas we've got other companies who are on the other side of that who are going what's the big deal too much investment in women what about the men now the men are missing out because now it's uneven and they're really misunderstanding the difference between equality and equity which was just a conversation for international women's day which is around you know equality is everyone has access to the same opportunities whereas equity is it's it's some people are treated differently so that it is a fair access to those equal opportunities right and the classic example is people standing on different heights so they can see over the fence right if everyone's got equality everyone's standing on the same you know rise step so they can see over the fence but the short people like me craig still can't see over the fence even though we're supposed to have access to the same opportunity of course so i need a bigger step so that i can access that same equal opportunity so this whole investment in women there's been a, a bit of backlash around you know we don't want quotas we don't want targets we're over investing in women what about the men and really that that argument is a misunderstanding about what we're actually trying to do and a nervousness around men who don't really know how to be involved in this conversation So, yes, I've I've written a book called The Gender Penalty. I've also written a pocketbook, a small one, called When Men Lead Women, Navigating the Facts, Fears and Frustrations of Gender Equality as a Male Leader. I'm clearly not a male leader, but I've had so many conversations with my male clients who are really um, interested, concerned, curious, anxious. How do I lean in, Annalie? How do I learn more? How do I ask questions without looking like I'm sexist? How do I understand what's going on without making it worse i feel you know the classic is i get slapped if i don't open the door for a woman i get slapped if i open the door for a woman i'm completely confused i don't know what my role is anymore and so really we need to start having conversations that acknowledge this this is a tricky situation and 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 we can't say everyone is at the same point in time because they're not organizations are moving through this at different rates even departments, even teams within those organizations are moving at different rates, right? So we have to have the ability for people to go, where am I in this conversation? And what's my personal next step? What am I ready for? Do I need more education? Do I feel educated but just not brave? Do I need to have different conversations? You know, what, what's my role in this is really a good place to start.
1: And this happens in all sorts of all all social change. Um, so it's mm-hmm. not just gender where this occurs, and it is, it it's a it's a difficult space to get through. It shouldn't be, yes. But we're human. We're we're wired by things that have happened previously. Um, yes. I have you know an eight and a half week baby um, as of the recording, and. You know, I, I watching my wife, who's an incredible, incredible human being, um, being a mother and and wanting to hold her career and yes, and continue doing things, but it's actually a real challenge. Like you are physically drained. You, mm. um, you know, you go through a period of nine months where your emotions fluctuate, where you don't have the energy and strength. Then you the baby arrives and you're feeding so you're up all hours of the night you don't get that much sleep the baby requires your attention um as as a male there yes i can provide so much support but i can't do everything i i unfortunately for my baby girl <laughs> i can't provide what she needs all the time yes. um, and and so that space is a real challenge you know for females who uh, or, or the the main, you know, so the, it might be the stay-at-home parent, et cetera, who really wants to forge a career, but mm-hmm. also make sure they support their children. It's a very mm-hmm. fine balance because we know with anything in life, if you are not consistent at it, if you take a break from it, it's actually quite hard mm-hmm. to get back on the horse, so to speak, and keep going. And I think we're seeing some bigger shifts in the way that companies are managing the... Um, the, the the main caregiver of the family. I'm not just going to say always the mum, but the main caregiver yeah. uh, around how we can try and keep them in roles where they can continue to progress and have that confidence to know they can continue to lead while still being a mother. What are we seeing in different companies or from different leaders around the world that is really supporting this space?
0: What we know is that the more equality that occurs in the home front the more equality is available particularly to women on the work front so equality starts at home there is no two way about it so no two ways about it if if men and women or you know parents can share the load in the home front now sure you know there's a period of time <laughs> you can't do much about that that's fine except provide a whole lot of emotional support and and lots of back rubs and foot rubs and all that great stuff but you know, once that sort of eases, if you like, there is still an opportunity to, to be equal in the home. So men can also, I'm talking, I'm, and I'm just going to talk about men and women for a moment. I'm going to talk about husbands and wives, whatever your situation is, but the, the co-parenting situation. So men can take up home care or a parental leave just as women can. That's happening a lot more. What we're seeing is men are not taking it up at the rates that are available to them because they are now violating their gender stereotype, which is I have to be the full-time provider and the care, you know, the, you know, the provider in the workplace. I have to be available 24-7 at the drop of a hat. And so if I want to work part-time or play the stay-at-home carer role, I'm now violating those gender stereotypes. And I get a backlash, a social backlash, if I try and do that in my workplace. So there's there's issues there for men as well. But if they can get over that and share the home care, they not only have a better appreciation for what it takes to do the home care, It um, research has shown that they will they, their kids are happier, healthier, more adjusted, they have better sex lives. I'm just saying there's a whole raft of benefits, Craig, that come from this. But also that once you start with the philosophy of shared home care, it goes all the way through. So women don't end up doing more housework, doing more home management, doing that second job, which is a real career killer for them when it comes to the workplace.
1: I like it. I like it. How, how can we support <laughs> that? And And I love the whole equality thing. Maybe we haven't quite got to that phase yet in regards to the young baby and I'm sure it'll come where we can. And decipher that a little bit easier um, yeah. with regards to what's required I'm going to shift a little bit here you talk about humanizing the leadership landscape mm. as the world gets more into artificial intelligence and technology are we seeing the role of humanization and the human becoming more important than it ever has been
0: I hope the answer to that is always, always. I hope <laughs> humans and the humanization of our existence is always becoming more important, especially in the context of AI. For me, you know, I'm, I'm AI is incredible and it does amazing things, obviously, and I'm excited about some of you know the potential that it represents. And I also know that. I am my best self when I'm around people that I enjoy, when I'm laughing, when I'm connecting, when I'm being challenged, when I'm communicating, when I'm surprised, when I'm delighted, when I'm disappointed, when I am living fully into the human experience, and that's an emotional experience. And and when I take that roller coaster ride, there's nothing there's nothing that can replace that. And so, for me, you know, we can introduce the AI all you like, but you can't take the human out of the human when you're replacing some of the things that humans do with AI. So there's always going to be a place for us. I don't see that getting any less. I look at the world today and I think people like me who do the work that I do, you know, um, coaches, people who teach communication and influence, people who are helping people understand about inclusive leadership and allyship and just dealing with other humans in the world will become more and more important because we're having we're getting people coming through nowadays with less skill and less ability to communicate and connect. I mean, people are breaking up via text, they're going for jobs over text. We're ghosting each other. I mean, there's just craziness going on. and I, the more I hear these things, and you know, younger generation,'ve I've come across this quite a bit lately. Younger generations coming into the workforce really reluctant to pick up the phone, really reluctant to pick up the phone. They want a message, they want a text, or they want to do a chat function. They don't want to call. And so many people of the old, older generation, not old older generation saying, just pick up the phone. It'll take you two seconds. You'll save 20 back and forth exchanges. Just pick up the phone. But there is a social anxiety with connecting now with real humans that just wasn't there before the internet.
1: Is that part of this battle that seems to be happening around what is humanly possible and what is what is success of a human mean? You know, with all the technology that's coming out here, with all the talk around um, four-day working weeks, etc., we're seeing the pace of the world speed up. It doesn't seem to be slowing all the time. And I don't know, I, I kind of get the feeling that everyone needs to be seen to be highly successful at something, you know, gone are the days where people were just seem to be quite happy, maybe on the outside <laughs> uh, about just going and having a job to pay the bills and keep the family um, with food on the table. Mm. But it now seems to be everyone is so focused on what success is. What does it mean? What, what is your take on this? We're, what for you, where are we hitting when it comes to the pace of the world? Are we hitting to crash and burn or are we actually <laughs> on the right track at the moment?
0: Uh, I think we're heading for a fall and I think we fell. We fell into the great chasm of COVID and it was a real wake up call for corporates, for families, for communities, and it really Uh, invited us to have a good hard look at ourselves is this the pace we want is this the life we want is this the the level of connection we want to our families and our friends and even our work and from my perspective a lot of people said no this is not what we want in fact we want greater connection to our communities and our home lives and and not even that to purpose in our work we want to do better work. We want to do meaningful work. I don't want to just turn up and crunch numbers or whatever the case is. You know, I'm, I'm happy to do a little bit of that. But a, if I'm going to come into the office, it's got to be worth my while. I'm not coming into the office to sit on a Teams call. I'm just not. Why would I? When I can take my kid to school and ballet, and you know, and go for a run in the morning and do all these amazing things for myself as a human, which will make me a better, you know, producer in the workplace. Why would I do these things? So. You know, for me, I have lots of people, you know, I, 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 I am my product as, the, as an expert in this space. I don't have a, a team of people doing all these things. So people always say to me, oh, Annalie, you must be so busy. You must be so flat out. And I say, "Nope, no, I don't do busy. I'm not flat out. I have just the amount of work that I want at a pace that I like. And I, and I refuse to be busy. <laughs> I don't want to because busy to me is not my marker of success space is my marker of success that is space in my mental capacity do i feel like i have time to breathe do i leave a meeting can i think deep thoughts about what i've just heard or what i've just been a part of and how does that factor into the things that i'm writing about and speaking about i feel like my job is is to be on the frontier of what's possible for humanity, and it's not going from meeting to meeting, back to back, racing through our lives. It's stopping, it's being present in our lives and doing what we can to really buck that system and ask ourselves, what is success for me personally?
1: Great question. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people (laughs) ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: A couple of years ago, I did something on my honeymoon that I vowed I was sure I would never do in my lifetime because I've almost been killed on several occasions and I thought there's no way I'm doing this. And I am talking about driving on the opposite side of the road because (laughs) I've been a visitor in many foreign lands. And I have on too many occasions almost died by stepping onto the road because I've looked the wrong direction, right? So if you're from Australia, you've done this all over the world. And every time I do it, I think, gosh, if I can't even cross this road, there is no way I'm getting behind the wheel of a car and driving. And I remember driving with my uncle in Sweden, sitting you know, in the back seat watching him drive and getting completely disoriented when he was driving and the whole time, like, there's a car, car. there's a car. car." And no, 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 that's okay. It's on the right. It's, it's correct. It's no, it's, it's correct. It's not a crash about to happen. And so I never thought I would have the capacity to do that, but I did. And I ended up doing, you know, the standard two what 200 kilometers on the German autobahn. (laughs) I, I never did 200 kilometers, but I do remember going much faster than I did at home and thinking to myself, And I'm on the wrong side of the road. Here I go, people. Look out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What is the one question that you would love to solve?
0: I want to know why countries, as a rule of thumb, don't get together once a year and share best practice. Now, I don't know if this is happening, but I'm talking simple things like Finland seem to have got it covered when it comes to a great education system so why aren't we all doing what Finland does you know Sweden has great um social care and and um social structures why aren't we just all adopting that I'm sure there's amazing technology and, and social interventions and ways of being across different lands, that if everyone across the planet just adopted that, it just seems to me like the easiest thing to look across at your neighbor and go, that seems pretty logical, amazing, and you've already sorted out and got the bugs out. Thank you very much. We'll be adopting that. You're welcome to our piece. So that's that's on a global level, On a, on a smaller level for me, and not that it's really small is, why haven't we solved the gender pay gap? I've seen lots of companies do it overnight, literally overnight. And yet I'm hearing too many organizations say, it's very complicated, we can't really do it. You don't understand why it's difficult. And I wanna know why is it easy for some and difficult for others? Not to say it's not difficult, but if it is easy for some, what can we learn from them that will at least make it easier for the others?
1: Very good. For you, what is an inspiring great leader and who's an example of an inspiring great leader to you?
0: An inspiring leader to me is someone who is willing to be themselves. I, I think this is the hardest thing on the world is to be comfortable in your own skin. To, to do what you believe to be right in the face of your peers, your stakeholders, the people around you, your family, for goodness sake, your community, you know, to, to be able to break out of any conditioning and expectations of the world around us and just say, this is what's true for me. And hand on heart, this is, this is the leader I want to be and really owning, owning that. Um, because with that comes a capacity to, to if you feel seen and heard and safe in your own skin, you have greater capacity to see and hear and validate others in their own skin. And from my perspective as a people whisperer, Craig and someone who studies people for a living, we are desperately wanting to be acknowledged, to be validated and to be accepted.
1: Wow, on that note, it's been a wonderful conversation And I'm sure there's plenty of people who are curious to learn more about what you do. So, what is the best way for people to connect with you?
0: On the internet or the interwoobles, as my husband would say. So, you can find me at my website, annaleeblundell.com. And on there are all my other social things as YouTube channels, videos, LinkedIn connections, all that kind of stuff. Um, Anything you might want to know about me will be found on that magical portal on the web.
1: Beautiful. So we'll pop those links into the show notes, And Lee, It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've loved our conversation from talking about being in Sweden to that kind of that, that conforming as a child to avoid, you know, the challenges that maybe some kids were were throwing at you because of the difference you had. Um, to talk about the um, and how we how we find difference challenging and how we try to avoid it and for the and so some of us who love to lean into it (laughs) uh looking at the gender parity and looking at the the pay gap in how can we provide more equality in in the workforce and in in life in general to even giving me some great advice <laughs> around parenthood in regards to equality, so I will be taking that on board and seeing how I can implement that more effectively every day. Uh, That's it. Do the vacuuming. <laughs> do, the, do the vacuuming. <laughs> uh, I love looking. I love looking after the garden and mowing the lawns. Um, good, good. But I can hold a vacuum as well. Um, I, I think with people like yourself, the the future of humanity is in a great place. And so I really love the work that you're doing and it's, it's been wonderful to speak with you today and we do need to uh, have another conversation I'm sure in the future, um, on or offline because uh, yeah. I'm curious to know even more about you. So thank you very much for your time today.
0: Pleasure, Craig. And yes, you're right. There is so much more to cover.
1: <laughs> it's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders Movement by visiting Craig Johns. .com.au Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig John's LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong